Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Anyway, so yeah, we've been tracking through these uh, these stories. Uh, we looked at the story of um, the the guys on the road to Emmaus and Jesus encountering them there. And as we look at the story uh, coming up, the story of Thomas, uh, it's such an interesting story because it's the story of this uh, character. We've given him this kind of bad name, Doubting Thomas. And when we think of the story, it's just kind of one of those uh, background stories that we sort of sometimes preach about when we're talking about doubt and faith, and it sometimes gets slid into one place or another in the sort of preaching schedule over the course of years. Uh, and we, we don't really always see it in its context. When we look, though, at the book of John, the story of Thomas is actually the climax of the whole book of John. It's the climax of the, of the, the whole story. It, it all builds up to this encounter with this black sheep apostle, uh, Doubting Thomas. In verse 30 of chapter 20 of the book of John, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so that's kind of like this statement of purpose. All of these stories that John has told, uh, tracking through the book of John, all of the detail that's been in there. Uh, finally, he tells the story of Doubting Thomas and Thomas's declaration of who Jesus is. And then John drops this punchline. All of this was written so that you might believe. And so how does this story of this uh, kind of black sheep apostle, this guy who we sort of say, like, man, everybody else was sort of trusting Jesus, and this guy, you know, is sort of full of doubt. How does he get that position? How does he get that sort of place of honor? Uh, Jesus, like, is intentionally interacting with his disciples and bringing them, as we see in the book of John, through a place of belief. And John's selecting these stories very carefully. If, if we look at the book of John, uh, he actually only touches on 21 days of Jesus' ministry. The whole book of John, Jesus had a three-year ministry, uh, just over a thousand, roughly a thousand and ninety-some days of Jesus' ministry. John touches only 21 of them and selects these specific stories to bring us to a place of faith, bring us to that place of belief, and ultimately, um, Thomas Doubting Thomas gets this linchpin moment. So the question for us is: Is how do we, uh, how do we, how do we see that? How do we take that on board? And how do we understand it when we're wrestling with our own doubts and with our own fears? Um, how do we really move from a place of doubt to belief? How do we move from doubt to belief as people? How do we make that shift from that place where Thomas was, skeptical and unsure, to a place uh, where we have confidence to move? Because the reality is, is that we all do wrestle with doubt. If you look at your own journey, um, we, we say what we said at the beginning of the service, like everyone, if we're comparing ourselves to Jesus and who he is and what we know about him, we're all obviously doubters. We're all obviously people that don't have a fulsome understanding of who Jesus is. But there are also seasons and phases and, and moments and places in our lives where uh, we, we feel those doubts more acutely. Uh, there would be some of you that I would guess that maybe in your teens went through a phase of saying, man, I, I have taken on board this Christianity thing. I've done the youth group thing. Uh, I've, I've come to Sunday school with my parents, but I'm not sure I really own my faith for myself. Right? There's that wrestling for an ownership of faith that we, we go through at stages of life. Maybe for some of us, it's you know, before we ever became to be Christians, that long period of 
can I lean on this? Can I trust this Jesus person? Uh, can I uh, accept him? Uh, maybe you had a radical conversion story. You had this time in your life where uh, Jesus uh, came into your heart, you accepted him, you believed in him, and you had a time of sort of radical faith where you were worshiping passionately. How many of you, after a period of a year or two of sort of very passionate faith, found that that energy, that strength, that, that emotional drive that was at the core of your faith uh, began to just diminish a little bit. And you didn't feel the feels the same way you used to feel them. Some of you recall that, some of you in that spot even, right? We're, we're in that spot, that initial sort of honeymoon phase can sometimes drift off. Um, maybe you've had feelings of, of being really close to God, like you, you hear from him and he's been speaking to you. And you're going now or you're experiencing a phase where, you know, I just don't feel like I'm hearing God speak like I used to. I'm asking him questions and I'm praying and I think I'm, I'm doing all of the right things, but, but I don't really hear the voice of God like I used to hear the voice of God. I'm not experiencing him. Uh, maybe you came into the faith and you had some high expectations for what Christianity meant for you. Christianity meant, man, uh, my life is just going to change. Everything is just going to get so much better. Uh, my health is going to improve. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be protected from harm. I'm not going to have to wrestle with poverty. I'm not going to have to struggle as much. Now that Jesus is with me, everything is just going to go great. And then someone that we love gets sick or someone that we care for uh, you know, becomes ill or we experience illness in our own body or a struggle in our business. And all of a sudden those expectations we had of who Jesus is and what he could do and what he could be for us, those expectations aren't met and we begin to wrestle with doubt. We begin to wrestle with fear. And, and it's, been, it's been one of the most painful things for me in my journey as a pastor uh, to see people who have had expectations about who Jesus was or a time of great joy in their faith and then found that at some point in their journey, life has gotten a little bit hard, life has gotten a little bit difficult. Maybe you've been hurt uh, by the church. And to just see people like that who's, who's, whose expectations haven't been met, who go into a period of doubt and, and begin to wrestle, just slowly drift away from faith and drift away from uh, the journey with Jesus. And, and, I, and I, think, I think that's been, been one of the most painful things for me as a pastor to witness, sometimes not knowing how to help, and just wanting uh, people to connect. And so I think that the story of Thomas, if we look at it in a little bit of a different light, can speak to some of that for us, can speak to some of the challenge, can speak to some of the struggle that we have uh, with our doubts. So I'm just going to read the text and we'll pray first. And again, I'm sorry we don't have it on the screens there, but I'm just going to read the text for us and we'll enter into the story and we'll just unpack it a little bit at a time. So Lord, as we look at the story of Thomas, we acknowledge our own doubts. Uh, we acknowledge our own struggles. Uh, we acknowledge the period of time we're in. Uh, maybe we're in a period of disillusionment, or maybe we're longing for the spiritual high that Christianity was in our teens, or may, maybe may, whatever it is, Father, that we're coming with, we just acknowledge the place we're in. And we ask that as we read the scriptures, you would speak to us and you would teach us. Lord, we, we trust that there's a reason you put this story in the Bible in the place you put it. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present here to interpret the word of God to us and to illuminate to us uh, that which inspires us, that which transforms us, and that which builds faith in our hearts. So we open ourselves up to the work that your word does. We open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit here. We trust you as we read your word to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. John 20, chapter, or verse 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. As Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I read that double slide. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands... In his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here we are, we're with the disciples. Uh, we're gathered together in the upper room. Uh, it's the first day of the week. The doors are locked because they're, they're afraid that the leaders or, or the soldiers will come in and will we'll arrest them or will challenge them. They've seen the persecution that's happened to Jesus. Uh, some of them have already heard of the resurrection of Jesus and have seen evidence of it. And they've been out telling the story. And there are people uh, sharing counter stories. There's a bit of a battle for the truth going on in the midst of that and there they are in that room with the doors locked and Jesus is all of a sudden there standing among them first off are you like a ghost guy where he walked through the walls or are you a Star Trek guy where he beamed in I'm a Star Trek guy I'm just gonna say like I'm pretty sure I don't know about the twinkly lights or the sound effects but all of a sudden, I actually think maybe he did some kind of a distraction thing. He just waited for that moment when the disciples were talking with each other and somebody was really speaking in a clear way and everybody had their attention and he was just around the outside of the circle and just sort of, he was just there, standing among them. He says, they, they look around, they see him and they freak out, ah! right? Are you gonna freak out if Jesus like appears in the room like mysteriously through your locked doors? There's a reason why he said, peace be with you, right? <laughs> right? Peace be with you, because they were flipping out, right? There is no doubt about it. They had to be just freaking. Uh, and Jesus sort of, he says to them, he says, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They weren't glad when he said, peace be with you. But when they saw the signs, when they saw the, the, the marks in his, his hands and the side, they, they knew all of a sudden this wasn't some ghostly, weird, spectral thing. This was Jesus. They knew it was him. And what we see really unfolding here is Jesus coming into a room with a scared group of disciples uh, revealing himself to them and ultimately uh, commissioning them, right? So they're aware that he's in the room. He gives evidence of who he is, right? Because the disciples are going to go all over the world. They're going to be speaking the story of the resurrection. They're going to be preaching. Uh, they're going to be talking with their friends. They're going to go to the four corners of the earth. So he wants them to know what happened. They want to make a connection between this risen Jesus and the one that they'd seen crucified. Wanted to make sure, and this is what we see in Paul a little bit later on. Let me know, I want you to know that I will only preach Christ and him crucified. So this isn't, isn't a fixed up Jesus. This is a crucified Jesus. Uh, so he comes and reveals himself to them. 
Um, they greet him with joy. And again, the second time, because they're still a little bit freaking out, he says, peace be with you. And I think he probably used his deep Jesus-y voice for that, like maybe with a British accent of some kind. Um, and, and, and just like brings them to a place of calm, brings them to a peace, peace. That word for peace is shalom. So it's wholeness, right? Because they're stirred up, they're broken inside, they're confused. What's going on in my life? And that word peace is a word that means shalom, to bring things to wholeness, to bring things together, uh, to make them clear. And so he says, uh, once they've, they've got this sense of peace, once he's standing there, uh, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is before Acts 2. This is before uh, them meeting in the upper room and the tongues of fire and going out speaking in tongues. So the, the, the disciples at that point sort of receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. I'm not sure exactly what that means, and theologians argue about it. But Jesus comes in the room in a way that fills them, in a way that encourages them, in a way that introduces them to the counselor in a very profound way. They have peace. They have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then he says to them, um, if you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So he's speaking about the authority that they're going to walk through in. So he's basically taking this group of disciples. He's having this powerful personal experience with them. And he's commissioning them for the ministry that's ahead for them. And Thomas missed it. Thomas was out getting the groceries. <laughs> Uh, he, was, he, he, he was out in the car uh, finishing up some texting before he came up to the room. Like, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know where he's at. It's pure speculation. We don't know what he was up to. Maybe he was uh, out there, like, sort of trying to, you know, just, just do some spy mission and find out what's going on so that they're locked in the room and they have intel. You know, we just don't know. It's all speculation. But Thomas missed it. Now, Jesus, who is sovereign, he could have picked a better moment if he'd wanted Thomas to be there, right? Jesus didn't make a mistake, but he, he chose to come at a moment when Thomas was there and have this incredible commissioning moment uh, with the disciples. So we go into verse 24, and it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, he was a twin named uh, the word Didymus is, is there. We don't know who his twin was, uh, but he was not with them when Jesus came. So when he does finally come, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. How many of you have ever like had uh, that moment in life when maybe it's in, you remember it from grade school or, or wherever, where you have this, this moment where your friends have all had this amazing experience and, and you weren't there, <laughs> right? And you missed the boat. And they're talking about it, right? They're, they're jamming. They're like, man, that movie was so awesome. Do you remember the point? And you're like, no, spoiler alert, right? You don't want to know what, what's going on, but you want to know the details. And you're envious like crazy of the enthusiasm that they have uh, about this experience that they've shared that you've missed. Now, uh, we could look at this point, and, and we just need to take a second and look at who Thomas was. Thomas was, uh, I think we could say from some other texts in the book of John, maybe uh, the realist in the group. Um, in John chapter 11, uh, this is around the story of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus has died. Uh, they've just had this near stoning experience as a group of people where it's like, uh, it were the, the uh, guys are after us, the Jews are after us. Uh, uh, they're they're going to stone us. They want to kill us. The disciples sort of escape. And then it's like, Lazarus has died. We've got to go back and, and care for our friends. And maybe Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus. They didn't know that at the time. And Thomas has this moment where he just sort of says, okay, um, I, I guess we'll go uh, that we may die with him. Like, let's go back, but I guess we're going to die, but let's go back, right? So we see in Thomas, right, this realism, this, okay, this is going to be really bad, but let's do it anyway, right? But he goes back, he, he seems like he's kind of negative, but he's kind of a realist. And in that, we've got this courage, right? He wants to press into the truth, and he wants to experience the truth of what Jesus has for him. John 14, uh, they're having a conversation about the way uh, to the Father. Um, Thomas uh, hears Jesus say, and you know where I'm going, to all the disciples. And Thomas is the brave disciple in the mix who says, we don't know where you're going. 
right? I don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then it opens the door for Jesus to teach. I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus teaches about him being the way. But Thomas is that one who's courageous. He's got that kind of little doubtful, curious thing inside of him that says, I I don't know where you're going. (laughs) And so that's the same guy that we see in the room, right? As Thomas comes into the room with this kind of honest desire for truth and this honest humility, uh, the disciples share so excitedly with him about their commissioning experience with Jesus And he just kind of responds and says, unless I see the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I just won't believe. You can picture a room uh, with uh, the disciples in there kind of excitedly talking. And imagine Thomas is a little downcast, right? They're maybe gathered around the table, at the buffet table, getting food, and, and he's kind of like the last guy to the table. Like, like I, just, I just did not share this with them. And I think for, for those of us who have wrestled with doubt and wrestled with uh, the struggle of not having faith, it's, it's often been hard for us uh, to be in a place where there are Christians who are enthusiastic and full of belief, and we're just not getting it. Have you ever felt that? Right? It's hard to be in a, in a place of doubt. And I'm just surfacing that. Uh, and, and that's something that unchurched people feel when they come into our church on Sunday mornings. They see us worshiping and praising God. And they're like, what are these people so excited about? Like, I, I just don't get it. I'm just not feeling it. And so that's just a note for us. Thinking about uh, Thomas and thinking about the disciples. Like, I would hope that the disciples would have an eye for the needs of Thomas as he wrestles through this moment because it's not he 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 wants to trust them you can imagine he wants to believe them but there's something in him that just didn't get to experience it for himself and I think we I think we maybe all know a little bit about what that's like to wrestle with doubt within the Christian community and when it comes to that doubt, when it comes to that belief, I think we should, should just take a second to understand what the scriptures mean when it talks about uh, belief there. Thomas said, until I place my hand in Jesus' side, I will not believe. Uh, for us, that word belief just kind of means I, I, will, I will be able to see in my head that a thing actually happened. Is that sort of how we, how we most of the time we think of belief? I can sort of, I can see it in my head how that thing actually happened, and I, and I kind of believe that thing. Well, the, the Hebrew concept for belief and, and what we see in the Greek as well is just, it's just, it's just more weighty than that. Uh, what Thomas is saying is, uh, until I, be, I see the hands, I will not pisteo, and that's a Greek word for belief. And what that really means is it means to, uh, my simple definition of, of faith is just to be persuaded enough to act. Just persuaded enough to act on what I kind of believe here. Like we can believe a thing out here, we can believe a thing in our head, and we can have an understanding of it. We can say, yeah, I kind of can see how that thing might have happened. I can kind of see how Jesus was resurrected. I kind of get that. But are we persuaded enough to act on it? And that's what Thomas really wants. I think that's what's, what's in the heart of Thomas. I think that's what's in the heart of the word and what it means here in the text is that Thomas is longing to have enough of a connection with Jesus, enough of an understanding that he's real, enough of an understanding of his resurrection that Thomas can say, I can get as excited as these people and not only get as excited about them, but I can get on the mission with them. And so for us, when we think about faith, when we think about that, when we think about our, our, our belief in, in Jesus, when we think about Christianity and what it means for us, we, we, we've heard this a hundred times. It's not just about, yeah, I've kind of got a, an intellectual assent to that thing, but I believe it at the level where I'm going to depend on it, where I'm going to lean on it. I'm going to let it cost my life something. And I'm going to let it affect my life in, in positive ways that, that I couldn't have done before. I'm going to let this thing, this idea, be something 
that is transformative in my life. And so Thomas basically is saying, you know, until these conditions are met, until I touch, until I see, I, I just can't go with you guys. I can't lean on this thing. Now here's a jump to the end of the story of Thomas, and I really wish uh, the, the visual was working for you. Uh, basically, I've got a map on the screen. Thomas, of all the apostles, went further than anyone in his mission to tell the world about Jesus. Thomas took the Silk Road across and in about AD 34, 38, somewhere there, visited a king named Gondifaris somewhere in the neighborhood of Kabul, Afghanistan, where that space is now. Thomas, there's record of him being there sometime uh, in, you know, in the 30, 38 years, like just very shortly after the time when Christ passed, within five to seven years. Thomas made his way on the Silk Road east while all the other disciples stuck around Jerusalem or went west. He went east. He went south. Um, and we don't know whether he worked his way down the coast of India or not, or whether he you know, went back and forth to Jerusalem and hit India uh, by trade routes, by shipping routes. But he gets to Kodungular in AD 52. And that's when we have record of him landing on the southern coast of India. You know, it's sort of a delta-shaped, triangle-shaped uh, continent or, or part of Asia. And he, he hits that shore somewhere around AD 52. And when you go back and, and, and if you talk to Christians who are part of the sort of the Church of St. Thomas in India, they all trace their, their Christian lineage back to this doubting Thomas guy. He, 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 the, the whole of, of that country, anybody with deep Christian roots, trace their faith back to that man. And he went down to the southern tip of India, spent about two decades there ministering. There's about eight or nine different communities that actually have like family records, like family records, like tracing their family lineage. Uh, back to people who knew Thomas and are, are just very proud to proclaim that they're Thomas Christians, that their families were led to faith by this man coming. And by the time we get to uh, Chennai, a little bit further north, moving up back up the other side of the continent, um, AD 72, uh, he's martyred there. Uh, he's, he's murdered with spears, basically, and martyred and, uh, and gives his life for the gospel in a completely different culture, outside the safety of the Roman Empire, he travels and shares his story. So how do we get Thomas from that place of being a person who has a strict ultimatum? Unless I stick my finger in the hole that's in Jesus' hand, I'm not going anywhere. What's the process by which Thomas went from there? to his martyrdom on the other side of the world. What's that process? How did he come to be someone who believes to the point of action? I'm just going to read from verse 26 to 28, and we'll unpack it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand I place it in my, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. And so there are a few things that I think we can just make in terms of observation here that I think can help us in our moments of doubt. In our moments of feeling like I just can't move forward in my faith until I see something here. I'm stuck. How, how did Thomas navigate that reality? The first thing that I, that I think we can just observe there is that Thomas was with his disciples. He, he didn't have to stick with them, right? He was isolated. He was lonely. He, they had a different experience from him. He was uh, separate from them. He, he didn't fit with them. But he stayed. He pressed into relationship. He pressed into connection. 
uh, he trusted his spiritual brothers that he'd walked with and that he'd talked with. And so I think that's maybe just the first little bit of counsel from the text for us. In those moments in your journey, those moments in life when you are struggling with faith, when you're struggling with, uh, I'm not sure I believe, I'm not sure I fit in this Christian community, uh, take a tip from uh, Thomas and lock yourself in a room with your brothers and sisters. There, there's something to be gained uh, by, by trusting those who know you and love you and care for you. Um, you know, we, we do need our own experiences. We can't have our faith uh, resting on the coattails of others. We, we do need to follow Jesus for ourselves. But honestly, we get part of the way from our community. We get part of the distance from the people that we hang out with. Those relationships are valuable. You can ultimately trust uh, the people that love you and care about you to, to, to tell you the truth, to, to guide you, to nurture you uh, through those difficult moments. It's funny, Anna had a friend come over last night Girl, wonderful girl named Gasha, and uh, she's a vet, and she was just giving some medicine to our dog. And as she uh, was, was about to give this medicine to our dog, she's like, oh, mate, I better tell you about the side effects. And she starts telling us about all the crazy things that could happen to our dog, seizures and, and everything else. And, and, and I'm like, as a, as a person who's like kind of a skeptic, kind of a research guy, there's a little bit part of me that kind of wants to dig into those details, that kind of wants to know, that kind of wants to understand what's going on. But I tuned her out actually pretty fast. <laughs> Sorry, you can tell her I said that. Um, because ultimately, I trusted Magasha. Like, this woman really loves dogs. Like, she really cares about dogs. She's not going to stick a needle into my dog that she thinks is going to give it seizures and make it barf on the floor, right? She, she, she cares about dogs, and, and I can ultimately uh, trust, trust in that. And the same is true with you and your friends. And in fact, every single part of your journey with Jesus, like, it is not possible for you to go back and be in the room with Thomas and the disciples, at some level in your faith, you are always trusting the story as it's been delivered to you by others. I could have insisted, I'm going to go to the lab, I'm going to look at the studies uh, with Magasha, take me back there, I want to see the research, I want to see the numbers, I want to look at that data in detail before I give this needle to my dog. But there's a point at which I'm able to trust that that person who cares for my dog is somebody who can be trusted to... to you know, stick a needle in it. The same is true with us and with our faith. At some point, you are always going to be trusting and need to trust the testimony of somebody else about Jesus. Right? You can trust Jesus' friends. You can trust the apostles. You can trust the scriptures. And you can trust the community of people around you that really know you and that really love you and care for you. When they believe and you don't, it's just okay to lean on them a little bit. So keep yourself in community and, and keep yourself connected uh, through the wrestling and, and through the doubt. Uh, the other thing that we see here and is, is Jesus comes this third time and he offers shalom. Right? He comes this third time and he just offers peace. And, and I think, you know, you, just, just reading the text, reading the Greek a little bit carefully there, you know, Jesus, it, it's kind of like a common greeting from the time period. It's like Jesus could have maybe just sauntered in and said, hey, what's up? <laughs> right? But, but that's not at all what was happening in the text. Uh, the, the phrase there in the Greek, lego erini hamin, and my pronunciation is terrible. It's a good thing that I used to speak Greek. Um, me, is, is Jesus commanded shalom? He declared shalom. Jesus brought shalom in that moment with some authority. And so here's our second tip for wrestling in moments of doubt. If we're going to get through them, there has to be something inside of us that is just even the tiniest bit open 
to recognizing that there's an authority beyond ourselves that can speak something into our lives. What Thomas had in his life, what Thomas had in his journey was, was a fundamental humility. Right? He's the same guy who, you know, earlier on was like, oh, well, we're going to all die, so let's go anyway. Right? There's sort of a fundamental humility there that, said, that, that I think was open to hearing that word shalom being spoken to him, open to that idea of authority coming. And there's a way in which none of us can come to the Father unless he draws us, Right? And so uh, that, that restoration of faith, at the very heart of it, there's an element of surrender, there's an element of, of trust, there's an element of trusting in an authority outside of ourselves. And if in our journey of faith, we are demanding Jesus to prove himself to us while we carry full independence and autonomy, I think we're in trouble. Because I don't think Jesus is going to respond that well to our pride. Now, he will sometimes. He will break through. And he will holy two by four you in the head. Like, he does that sometimes. And some of us have those, those stories, right? But, but the reality is, is that most of the people that I've known who've, who've gone through a period of doubt and gone through a period of struggle have ultimately, even in a minuscule way, had a moment of, I kind of give up here. I, I can't do this by myself. I can't make this happen. I need the peace of Jesus to come in a supernatural and sovereign way. And so if you're in that place where you're wrestling with doubt and where you're struggling to believe and struggling to trust, there's something for you there in, in thinking, well, Jesus, if you're real, if you want to say something to me, to my journey, you've got permission to say it. And we just pray very simply with that if, with that humility. If you're real, Lord, I open myself up to you. And he, he comes and he, he speaks. Then it says this, it says, uh, and this is, this, I, I love Jesus doing this. He, he says to Thomas, I mean, Thomas is standing there in the room with all of the other disciples, and he says, put your finger here and see my hands. Uh, put your, your hand and place it in my side. And then he rebukes them, rebukes them. Do not believe, disbelieve, but believe. And, and every scholar agrees on this, that Jesus is doing something and John is uh, recording something linguistic here that is, is really interesting, right? He's, he, what he's doing is he's saying to Jesus, you know, you, know, you can have the proof. You can, you can uh, you know, stick your finger in my side. Uh, you can stick your finger in my, in my hand. But I'm kind of rebuking you for needing to. <laughs> right? He, what Jesus is doing is what we would call in marriage counseling a double bind, have you ever had your spouse just sort of come? Timothy Keller points this out. Uh, they're just thinking of Kim, Timothy Keller a lot this week as he's passed away. But uh, if you ever had a spouse say to you, or go to your spouse and say, man, I, the guys are going out after, after work, or the lady, a lady could be saying this to her husband, you know, my friends are going out after work. I would just, I'd love to go out for a beer and just hang with them. You, you okay with that? And your spouse can say to you, Absolutely, I'd love for you to go. Go have fun with your friends. I mean, if you don't want to hang out with me and watch a show tonight, that's totally fine. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Anybody heard anything like that before? Anybody ever pulled that one before? <laughs> that's sort of what Jesus is doing to Thomas here. He's like, hey, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, feel my hands and, and feet. But... Don't disbelieve, believe. And Thomas is stuck, right? Like he can't win. You know you can't win those, right? Right? You can't win when that when that sort of double uh, binding thing happens in your life. And so Thomas is kind of stuck in this moment. But what Jesus is addressing there in Thomas, I think, I think where the rebuke comes is that there's something in Thomas that isn't actually a healthy and humble disbelief like we've talked about. That phrase, uh, don't disbelieve but believe, is 
be not apistos, but pistos. And it's not just don't be not believe, but believe. It's don't be anti-belief. Don't be against belief. Don't be actively opposed to belief. Believe. And so I think what Jesus was detecting in Thomas in that moment is that there was something in him that was actually actively opposed to the truth that Jesus wanted to reveal to him. Uh, That thing in Thomas, that ultimatum, you have to show me exactly what I need to see or I am not following you. Jesus is addressing, I think, that little ultimatum. That's a really good question for us. Um, Is our doubt really a healthy doubt sometimes? Or is it an artificial set of conditions that we've placed on our belief to get Jesus to perform the way we want him to? Right? Have you ever done that with Jesus? Known people who have done that? Like, I I will absolutely follow you, Jesus. I will give you uh, my life. I will go after you. I will go to church on a regular basis. But church is kind of boring. Like, we never see any miracles, Jesus. Like, if you would, like, heal the sick, I would be so in. Right? Now, Jesus does miracles. We want to see all of those things happening. Uh, or how about Jesus, like, if you would heal uh, me, if you'd heal my knee, like, I've got a bad knee, like, Jesus, if you would heal my knee, I'll do anything for you. Sometimes we put these things out there that are conditions that we want Jesus to meet, that we want him to dance for us. Sometimes it's just a very high standard of proof. Uh, sometimes it's just something that we want so that we can enter into Christianity in a new way uh, without having to work at it. We want to just enter in because it feels good. I don't want to have to work at it. I don't want to have to be disciplined about this thing. I just want it to feel great. And we press in uh, if Jesus will dance for us. And Jesus very often is, is quite willing to do that. He's very generous. But we hear these little gentle complaints in the text from time to time when Jesus encounters this. In John chapter 4, 48, he feels, heals the official son, and Jesus says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. John 10, 38, if you don't believe me, at least believe in the works. Right? John 14.10, if you cannot trust me, at least let these works I do in my Father's name convince you. And you can see something in the heart of Jesus that wants to be trusted relationally and personally more than he wants to be trusted for the stuff that he does. And I think that's, I think we, we actually know what that feels like too, don't we? But you know what it's like to have somebody who wants uh, something from you, but doesn't really care to relate to you or care or, or spend time with you. They just want the stuff, right? And so Jesus, he's, he's so gracious and he's so gentle. He did heal the official son and he does miracles and he does demonstrate his power. But what he wants is a deeper relating to him when that, and, and a deeper faith and a deeper leaning on him that comes uh, from relationship. Be not a pistos, but pistos. Uh, Thomas is coming with this ultimatum, and Jesus says, I, I don't want to reach you through your ultimatum, Thomas. I want to reach you uh, in a different way. So sometimes we inflate the cost of our allegiance, don't we? Right? And, and in some cases, this is an even harder one for us. In some cases, we inflate the cost of our allegiance so that we don't have to give it. Right? Say, you know, some, you could be wrestling and talking with somebody who's wrestling with, with a persistent doubt. I just can't sign on to this Christianity thing. I'm, d- I'm just not buying it. You have to prove it to me. And in reality, they they might actually even know in their heart. They may have experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. They may have experienced the presence of Jesus. But they may be demanding a high standard of proof so that they don't have to do what's going to cost them something in terms of following Jesus. 
right? We, we do that. We play these little mental games with ourselves. And I think Thomas had a little bit of that going on. Like, Jesus, like, why didn't you just show up when I was here with all the other disciples? Like, now you're going to pay. Now you've got to really show me. Right? That's kind of what's going on in Thomas's heart, I think. And so Jesus sort of gives Thomas the choice, the same as he does in John 10 and John 14. Like, believe in me. Like, you can have the, the, the proof if you want, but, but I just want you to believe in me. I want you to trust me. I want you to know me. And so as he uh, does that and puts it out there, and Thomas has this choice, basically, am I going to reach out my hand and I'm, am I going to stick it in Jesus' side? Or am I going to respond to him and follow him? Most scholars ag- agree that Thomas just didn't do it. <laughs> He just didn't put his hand in Jesus' side. John, the way he writes in detail, Jesus picked up the basin. He wrapped the towel around himself and he washed his disciples' feet. John, who would include the detail, and Thomas reached out and touched Jesus' hand. He does not include that detail because it did not happen. Thomas lays down his conditions. He lays down uh, his ultimatum. He lays down his pride, and he says, Jesus, I want to relate not to your miracles, not to a proof. I want to relate to you. I want to know you. And I think what we see there is Thomas um, trusting in, in, in the relationship and trusting in what he's hearing He's trusting in the shalom. He's trusting in what he sees of uh, Jesus. He, he sees the hands, but he, he doesn't need to touch them. He knows. And I think that's the next little pointer for us is uh, the character and the person of Jesus, apart from any true proofs we might be looking for, the character and the personality of Jesus can be enough trust for us, can be enough evidence for us. We can trust the scars. Like, you can trust the story of Jesus. You can trust someone who uh, endured the lashes for you, who endured the crown of thorns for you, who endured the trials of Pilate before the Sanhedrin, who picked up his cross, who carried it as far as he could until he needed help, who was mocked and who was scorned, who was shamed, who was stripped naked, who was laid on a cross and who had nails driven through his hands and feet and was hung standing there in front of a crowd who was jeering at him. The person who did that for you, is that enough proof? Is that enough proof for us of his love? We relate to him, we relate to the resurrected Jesus by knowing that he was the crucified Jesus by knowing that he died for us. He's proven himself. It's an old World War uh, I poem. A guy in the trenches who said this. He said, it's a guy named Edward Shalito. He said, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds... Only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. You can trust the God who is wounded for you. You can trust the God who is crucified for you. And the testimony of that coming across the ages and his presence with you in your suffering, his presence with you in the struggle is enough proof and was enough proof for Thomas to send him to the far side of the world.
he didn't have to put his hands in Jesus' side. The crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus come together with the presence of the Holy Spirit was enough for him. And so Thomas uh, refuses the offer, refuses the double bind, and he says this, he says, my Lord and my God. And this is the most profound confession, the climax of the book of John. All through the book of John, Jesus is revealing himself as the one who forgives sins. He's saying, I am that I am. He's revealing himself as Yahweh. But it isn't until this moment with Thomas that somebody comes out and says, you are not only our Lord, our master, our rabbi, you are God. You are Yahweh. And I will follow you. And not only is it theological, not only is it ideological, it is deeply personal. You are my God. You are my Lord. I own you. I own this journey with you. I am on it with you. And from there, he went to the ends of the earth to take the gospel to places no one else would go. And to take it one step further, to just capture this incredible picture from the life of Thomas. We know from church history that he died uh, killed by swords. And just imagine that the man who would not put his hand in the sword scar in Jesus' side was killed by spears himself for Jesus. You can trust this crucified Lord. You can trust the Savior. You can follow him. Amen. Jesus says this now to you. You can hear these next words echo across 2,000 years. He says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Thomas got to see those hands. Thomas got to have that conversation. You did not. But across 2,000 years, Jesus says to you, people here at Calvary Pentecostal and at Ottawa Valley Community Church, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe and yet act and yet lean and yet move and yet obey the Lord Jesus Christ as he calls us to go. Will we believe? Will we doubt like Thomas? The good part of Thomas, the humble part that says, Jesus, just show me you. I just want you and I'll follow. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.